Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge. And as always, join with Shelly Billinghurst. How's it going, Shelly? going great, Serge. We've got a really cool guest today. I'm I'm going to hazard a guess that most of our listeners have never heard and are going to be absolutely like, where have you been all my life? So I'm very pleased to introduce Carrie Sparrow, who is the CEO and founder of Greenwich.hr. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about how you found yourself starting Greenwich and why? Sure. You know, I've got a career that recruiters would consider non-traditional. I went to an engineering school and got a degree in computer engineering and then immediately went into the U.S. Navy. I was a submarine officer there for eight years. And when I got out, I got into management consulting and I grew a career as a consulting executive, largely involved in big efforts around creating human capital management capabilities in companies. So HR strategy, the setup of HR functions, the deployment of really big HR technology initiatives, and and then moving into people analytics. I shifted at that point and went into the corporate world uh, where I did all those things in the context of a really big uh, global company. As a global IT and HR executive to deploy human capital management capabilities, process data organization across about 65 countries and about 100 different business units and, and functions. So got a lot of experience with a lot of different types of companies, uh, a lot of different settings, a lot of different cultural environments. And along the way, got a pretty good appreciation. And this came out of the military, really, the value of leadership, the value of people in driving the performance of organizations, and then seeing how organizations set themselves up in order to really get the most from their workforce, but also deliver the most from their workforce. And that led to the individual dots that I finally connected where I saw an opportunity to create a company that does what Greenwich does. Founded Greenwich in 2015, largely because the conclusion I reached was what was holding HR organizations and and companies overall back when it comes to human capital management. There'd been waves of progress through you know, technology improvements, process improvements, organization design improvements, but the fundamental barrier, the thing that really limited things was around data. It's spread all over the place. It's not set up in a way that you can look at it collectively. In a lot of cases, what really matters isn't being collected at all. And the fundamental reasons for that were being overcome. HR as a function was spearheading the move to cloud technologies, moving on to common technologies. We did a lot of work around putting data into a common format. And as I was talking to different consulting firms and different HR service providers, I was saying, if you guys are moving a lot of data onto a common platform and you know how to look at it through the right lens, that's bringing transparency to a huge market. And anytime you bring more transparency to a market, great opportunities for innovation show up, great opportunities for efficiency. I knew how much money and especially time was being wasted on bad data. Mm-hmm. All the firms that should have been in a great position to do something about this all kind of nodded their heads and looked at me like I had horns growing out of my head when I described what I thought the opportunity was. And the more I looked into it, the more I thought that's something that I think we can take advantage of. And so that was the beginning of Greenwich.hr. 
Mm-hmm. And very quickly, we put in place a, a data platform that takes a totally different approach to finding out what's happening with, with jobs and with pay and skills, the balance between supply and demand in the marketplace. Tell us how you came up with the name. Uh, it's a really geeky story. It's actually named after Greenwich, England, which is where the Royal Observatory is. And okay. after many decades of work, the Royal Observatory landed as the, the standard setter for the most pervasive standards for the whole human race, which are the standards for time and space. They needed to figure out where you are on the face of the earth. And in order to do that, they had to figure out a way to track time in a standard way, consistently. The way that we look at maps and the way that we look at time all came out of there. Why does the clock say 117 in the afternoon instead of 124 in the afternoon? Nobody really thinks about that. And so the aspiration for our company was built on that, which is, can we bring a standard way of looking at the world of talent, looking at the labor market through a lens that can become so pervasive that nobody even really thinks about it or questions it after a while. And that was our objective. And like I said, it's an incredibly geeky metaphor, but that's where it came from. Tell me, how do you work with companies? What do you do for them? What's your process? What do you look at? How does that evolve? Sure. So what we do is we have an operation that is all about collecting real-time data on jobs, pay, skills, hiring behaviors, and the supply and demand of talent in the, the labor market. That operation runs 24 hours a day. We have robotic technology that goes out and gets data from literally millions of online sources and brings it together and puts it in a, a standard format, gets rid of errors and duplications. And then we have a data asset that is a very powerful data asset that can be used for lots of different purposes. We're a data as a service company, which means that we sell access to that data asset, our data platform, to companies that either need to do pre-advanced analytics on it, or they want to embed the intelligence that's available from that asset into their services and their and their own applications that they then sell, which is why a lot of people haven't heard of us because we're embedded in the products and services they use. We're not necessarily the application itself, but we support companies that range all the way from quantitative trading hedge funds to media companies, to big corporations in the workforce analytic area, in the recruiting area, consulting firms, recruiting firms, technology companies of all stripes. Now, that whole model is evolving. We actually are going to be entering into the application business this quarter. The market for jobs and what's going on with pay right now in particular is so crazy compared to what it's been historically with the after effects of COVID, the wage inflation, the impact of remote and hybrid work, changing location mm-hmm. considerations and so forth, that we actually are building and deploying applications targeted to recruiters and compensation professionals that allow them to see what's happening real time with pay and jobs in the areas that they care about. We're in 50 nine countries right now we get data for for the most of the developed countries we're tracking about 80 percent of all the new jobs so huge sample sizes that allow really precise analysis and because it's updated every day and because it's coming from online sources it's totally transparent so we don't have to hide what companies are doing we're particularly good at figuring out what companies expect to pay the positions that they're going to be hiring for and we don't have to hide any of that which means that recruiters and other hr professionals can now see what's happening in their area. They don't have to wait for survey data that is based on decisions that were years old and and relatively small sample sizes. You can see pretty much almost the whole market. 
in real time. And so you talked about pay, and this is a topic of conversation from all talent management, talent acquisition professional. We're seeing a massive shift. Some of the things I'm reading is that slowing down with wage inflation last year is actually stagnating this year. Any key insights on what we're seeing on actual compensation and wage right now? Yeah. So on a monthly basis over 2021, across all types of jobs, the median pay for how new jobs were being positioned, I'm going to use the term expected pay level. This is what companies are saying they're expecting to pay for a job they haven't hired. It's Mm -hmm. different than what you'd see in a traditional compensation survey, for example, which is what people who have jobs today are getting paid based on decisions that were made a long time ago. This is about what companies are saying the, they're going to be paying uh, jobs they haven't hired yet. So the median expected pay in Canada bounced around a bit, but it generally was in the range of about 53 a year. And that's where it is now. So the pay changes from month to month, a few thousand up or a few thousand down, but it, the trend isn't really discernible over that time period. What is interesting is that some jobs, the pay trend is pretty notable and recruiters being one of those jobs. But I'll tell you the picture in Canada though, overall is very different than the picture in the U S in the U S wage inflation is huge right now in March, about 80% of the Metro areas saw their advertised wages going up and across the entire country, advertised wages went up by almost 8% just in March compared to February. That's not going to annualize out, but still most of us through our entire careers have never seen wage inflation above about four and a half percent. In Canada, the, the impact is a little bit more homogeneous. The behaviors across the different cities, a little bit less uh, variable uh, than- What do you think the is the difference between Canada and the US? Because like, there's so much similarities of between each We think market. there's similarities, but- yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, to tell us, Carrie. Yeah, yeah, so we, it's interesting because I was expecting, as we were digging into this, to see a lot more variation across the cities. And there's some. For example, yeah. the hiring rates uh, across Canada have dropped in 2022 compared to 2021, pretty notably. We were tracking uh, a little over a million new jobs a month across all of Canada, all the way through November of last year. And now we're tracking between 500 and 600,000 uh, new jobs a month. So a pretty notable drop. And and like Toronto, for example, and Montreal, those drops are about 40, 46, 47% uh, compared to where we were even five months ago. But Calgary, for example, is down just about 10%, a bit more resilient there, I'd say. Now, what's underneath it? The local economies usually are what drives that. And it could just be that there was so much hiring going on in general across Canada last year that companies are working to digest all of that, especially as new budgets are coming out. They're working on making sure that they've got the the momentum in the right direction and they're assimilating everyone that they've brought in. I think there's still a lot of open questions in terms of how work will be done that companies are still trying to figure out. In the US, we're seeing hiring rates that are fairly steady, but wages going up. In Canada, we're seeing wage rates that are fairly steady across the whole population of jobs, but hiring rates that are going down. That doesn't mean that there are fewer jobs, It just means that there's less of a frenzy around hiring for new jobs. So one of the things that, and I certainly am no expert on this, but when I hear the number that you just talked about in terms of wage inflation in March in the US, Canada versus the US, could it be, and this is just a guess, Carrie, could it be that our minimum wage right across Canada is 14 or 15? Could that explain why, like, U.S. wages have a long way to catch up to even be considered poverty level. 
Yeah. I think there's a number of factors that have to do with kind of the whole social environment between Canada and the U.S. that are driving some of those differences. That could very well be one of them. The benefits environment or the healthcare environment uh, could be another factor. The stimulus that the U.S. government deployed throughout 2020 and 2021 is giving people a lot of reason to rethink what they want to be doing. Even though unemployment is now back to you know, historical levels, you've still got a lot of people on the sidelines uh, saying, I'm not sure if I want to go back to that same mm-hmm. kind of work I was doing before. There are a variety of kind of social differences that mm-hmm. could be contributing to it. And then there's just general economic differences too that could be mm-hmm. contributing. So talk a little bit more about recruiters. Yeah. I know there's a perception and again, Carrie, like maybe this is like our Mythbusters show for 2022. Because the perception is even when I go on to LinkedIn, I am being bombarded with the number of jobs for Mm -hmm. talent acquisition, but I'm left with the impression that it is crescendoed here in Canada because I've never seen that many senior level TA talent acquisition leadership roles. I've been in this game for over 25 years. I've never seen the likes. What is your data showing? So there absolutely was in 2021, I'll tell you, was. and it, it, okay. it, there was. Okay. Uh, so in 2021, there was a growing number of new openings for recruiters. Okay. Data really clearly showed that on the, the base recruiter jobs that we were we were tracking, we were looking at about 5,000 new openings a month by, by about the fourth quarter of, of last year. Pay was also going up. What started at about $57,000 for a median pay of a recruiter across all of Canada was getting up to as high as 80,000 across all recruiter positions by October of last year. That trend was unmistakable. The demand was up and the pay was up and going up further. And then as the holidays came in and mm-hmm. the new year came in, we saw a decline that was was similar to the rest of demand for jobs across Canada, where the number of job openings for recruiters dropped from over 5,000 a month down to about 1,500 a month right now is what we're tracking. And so I think that folks still recognize that there was really strong demand uh, for recruiters, but the actual numbers are pretty notably less right now than they were five months ago. The pay numbers are also down. So the median pay, like I said, was working its way up to 81,000 towards the end of 2021. Mm-hmm. And now it's down to below 60,000 mm-hmm. right, for the new positions. Sorry. How does this compare to the US and the rest of the world? So the U.S., the wages are going up for all types of positions, including the skilled salary positions, but especially for lower hourly positions and mid-level hourly positions, they're going up even faster. But we're looking across all of HR types of positions in the U.S. at wage inflation of about 12% annualized right now. So still very high, but not as high as what you'd see for skilled hourly positions uh, that pay less than 50000 a year, which... Is, is much higher. What uh, is the demand for recruiters in the US and the rest of the world? Have we seen that drop as we have in Canada? No. Uh-uh. So the demand for jobs in the US has come down compared to where it was at the end of the last summer mm-hmm. by about 30% uh, in terms of the number of listings that we're tracking, but that's pretty consistent across all different types of positions. So we're not seeing quite as much of a drop as we've, we've seen in, in Canada. And we're definitely not seeing the wage behaviors uh, that we're seeing in Canada. Now, by the way, the fact that the expected pay levels for new recruiter positions in Canada are going down does not mean that if you're thinking about changing jobs, you'll necessarily have to put up with a lower 
uh, salary. It just means that there are fewer higher salary recruiter positions available. Yeah. And the kind of recruiting that you're doing plays a really big role in what that, that pay level is because we're able to look at what is the content of the job that is driving pay one way or the other. If you are recruiting IT professionals or finance professionals, you can see uh, wage differentials of fifty or sixty thousand dollars Canadian above the medians. It depends on the nature of the work uh, that you're doing. The availability of the higher-paid uh, recruiting jobs is definitely going down. If we look at roles in the recruitment world that we talk a lot of being mm-hmm. probably the most difficult, the most challenging, the most competitive, and a lot of them are in the tech sector. What mm-hmm. are you seeing with roles that we hear a lot and is the perception the same? Like software developers are, are definitely the one that I hear the most. Maybe I'm biased because that's my background, but what are you seeing for those types of roles? So the demand for tech is very high. In the top 20 jobs across all of Canada, I think five of them were tech jobs. That's actually a, a pretty high representation. Other kinds of jobs are like sales jobs, low and mid-level management jobs across all industries, uh, hospitality jobs, supply chain jobs that fills out the rest. But I would say tech supply chain and hospitality represent big needs across both Canada and the U.S., I would say. Hospitality more so in the US, which would include food and beverage, restaurants, um, hotels, mm-hmm. and things like that. Shelly, largely because of the the, the wage gap that, that you were mentioning mm-hmm. earlier. And then uh, supply chain, just because supply chain has just been stressed worldwide. And, and really the whole kind of concept of home delivery has been put to the test throughout the pandemic. And so there's all kinds of new businesses around that and all kinds of needs for new types of workers or more workers in the supply chain area. But tech is pretty pronounced. When the pandemic started, tech hiring overall went down disproportionately more than hiring in general. And it took a lot longer to come back. But coming into, you know, in the, in the second half of 2021, and especially as we came into 2022, tech hiring is absolutely back. And there's a lot of open questions about where's the best place to get folks, what's the right way to pay them. The whole notion of remote work, I think, has thrown an awful lot of of questions in terms of how do we source tech talent. Yeah, I wanted to ask, because what Greenwich does is you take a look at what they expect to pay. And as soon as we start to layer in hybrid or remote, any surprises or insights around that? If they're anticipating to pay less because the job is remote. That's my assumption, right? The wages may not be lower because the cost of the needs of a remote worker are lower and companies want to take advantage of that. Where the opportunity is that in the really high wage locations, companies now have an an opportunity to hire from outside of those locations, workers that can work remotely and they don't have to pay those location differentials like they had. The really high priced areas on the coasts in Toronto and down in the US and New York, or especially the Bay Area, if you can hire talent outside of those areas, you're not going to have to pay the same rates. And so if you can adapt your business model, and a lot of companies have, and, and there's always new companies that are starting from the ground up thinking that they'll be remote, like Greenwich did. When I founded the company back in 2015, I had no intention of of having office space of any kind. And so our workforce is, is global from the beginning. We were remote before remote was a thing, I like to tell people. That's where there's the opportunity to save money is on the wage differentials to high price locations to less expensive locations. There's all kinds of things that opens up. When you drill down a little bit, 
companies are really hiring for skills, not necessarily for jobs. In any given market, you may have a surplus of certain kinds of skills, certain types of programmers, for example, will stick with tech or certain kinds of healthcare workers, that there's more of those skills at a lower rate than there is demand for those skills in another city. And so not only do you have location arbitrage opportunities by going to remote, but you could also have skills arbitrage opportunities where you can source skills from lower cost locations and configure jobs around where you're getting the skills from. And there was a lot of work before the pandemic that was starting to look at how do we reconfigure jobs to take advantage of things like automation and outsourcing and so forth. And fundamentally, the whole notion of the future of work and rethinking what organizations need to look like with the ability to see where skills actually exist across the market now, there's an opportunity to really click down on that and say, let's think about where we're getting skills from now. Let's think about the best way to package jobs and teams uh, around those kinds of decisions and, and opportunities. So. so it's all coming together for me now. So Carrie, that's what Greenwich does. For as long as I've been in recruitment, known that where there is a surplus, there is a deficit Yeah, and vice versa. And being able to figure out, for example, if what we need is age care, health providers, because it all still falls under the big N category of nursing, but yet it is a very different type of nursing care. So that's where organization would come to Greenwich and say, Mm -hmm. hey, here's what we are trying to forecast as part of our talent acquisition strategy. Tell me where we should be looking, where should we be focusing? And you've got the data. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. And and also, as part of a talent acquisition strategy, one of the things that the data shows really clearly is that one size doesn't fit all. Everything is local at some level. The kinds of nurses that you would see in any one city and what skills are, are getting paid or what amount in that city would look totally different than when you go to another city. In Atlanta, where you've got the, a lot of research going on, research, project management skills are receiving big pay premiums for nurses. But yeah. if you go over to another big city where there's a lot of clinical activity going on, then you'd see clinical specialties getting a lot of the attention. We're able to bring to bear not just the hiring data, but also data from publicly available career profiles that, mm-hmm. that talk about what kind of skills folks have and, and be able to paint a picture in a way that doesn't share any private information or personal information, but to paint a picture of where are people that have those skills today and, and how has that changed? This is a good segue into pay transparency. So as yeah. you're aware in New York, Colorado, and there's more states coming, you have to advertise the pay. Right now, we're in a very tight labor market. We know the data shows that companies that are putting their pay data are actually getting more applications, but there's still a massive amount of hesitancy, especially from the C-suites and executives. We don't want to share it right now, and they feel it might be a competitive disadvantage. There's many reasons why they don't want to share it. Do you think it's important for companies to advertise their pay? Yeah, so I haven't personally come down really hard one way or the other okay. around pay transparency, but I have some views on the way that pay transparency is actually moving forward. And one of the views is that I don't think it's just going to be up to the legislators uh, and, and governments to decide the direction on this. I think you're yeah. seeing tech companies like job boards and uh, recruiting applications that are strongly encouraging their users to publish pay rates or even 
trying to infer what the pay rates will be themselves and then offering that view to the job applicants. Pay transparency is a trend that is not going to get reversed. Right now, only about 15% of all job listings have pay mentioned in the listing itself, a specific you know range. Now, when ranges are mentioned, though, this is where I question the usefulness of the way that pay transparency is being implemented, because even as a, a method to bring attention to and start addressing pay equity issues, which I think is absolutely critical. The way that it's being implemented, if you looked online and you looked at the different listings from any of the major boards that include pay, a lot of times you're going to see a range of pay that is on average by our count about plus or minus 25%. Plus or minus 25% is not really an actionable pay estimate. There's a lot of latitude within that kind of range, which is why we built a technology that actually gets that variability down to plus or minus 2%. Our technology is able to figure out how companies are positioning jobs for pay with a much higher precision and then also at a much greater percentage rate. Uh, So about 75% of all the jobs that we track, we're able to figure out what the expected pay level is uh, based on how companies are positioning those uh, themselves. The goal of pay transparency in terms of supporting pay equity is the right goal because I I believe strongly that we need a lot more attention on pay equity. And I think that the general trend is you're going to see pay mentioned uh, in job advertisements, but Mm -hmm. I don't know how actionable it's going to be. Really good points. I agree. Equity is going to be key and the ranges are are really widespread. And we've seen indeed really come to play and being mm-hmm. the biggest player in the world, they're the type of company that needs to force this issue for it to happen. So I'm glad right. that's happening. But the other factor is the competitive advantage to put a salary. Do you think that is going to be another driving factor? Well, you know, it's like Henry Ford doubled the wages of all of his workers back over a hundred years ago, precisely because he had a turnover problem and he wanted to attract really skilled talent and he wanted to keep them, right? And so companies that kind of embrace that approach where they look at pay as a competitive advantage, especially in this labor market, and they want to say that we offer great paying jobs for great people, have a lot of reasons to showcase what their pay levels are, regardless of the precision that they use to do so. Companies that their business model is built off of high productivity of uh, low-priced workers have a lot more to be concerned about. Also, it's really just a new concept that makes a lot of leaders very uncomfortable. That said, looking at all the different ways that candidates can figure out how much a job is likely to pay, I don't think it needs to be as much of a concern or viewed as much of a threat by business leaders because future employees already have a lot of resources available to them. And current employees also have those exact same resources. So if they feel like they're not being paid appropriately, they have tools available to them to figure that out. It's true. It's true. I'm going to put you on the spot a bit, Carrie, because you have access to so much data. I I geek out a little bit here, but when you're looking at the analytics or trends, anything that you feel is going to be disruptive? You know, it's like uh, William Gibson has the, the quote attributed to him. The future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And so the things that are likely to have the most profound disruption are already to a degree underway. And we already mentioned one of them, which is around equity. All the different uh, dimensions of equity are going to be shaping uh, the way the companies move forward because there is so much critical mass from so many different angles that this is a really big deal. What happens with remote and hybrid work 
is a story that is yet to be told, right? And it's going to have a profound impact on not just individual companies, but entire industries, entire business models, and entire opportunities there. There's, there are a lot of disruptive elements right now because you combine remote and hybrid work with the fact that the workforce continues to be getting older and there's a lot of talent that is systemically challenged to stay in the workforce as they get older. That talent is an asset, a societal asset that will not stand still. So you've got a resource of aging workforce, you've got bigger light being shined on equity across all different segments of workers, you've got the technology and the business models now to take advantage of remote and hybrid work all coming together. There's some even bigger disruptors out there around uh, climate change in particular. There's a lot of disruptive factors that are coming together. We've just barely begun to see what some of the implications of those are. We'll see more of them as 2022 continues to go on. The real changes are going to start um, picking up speed in 2023 and, and after that. Scary and exciting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Carrie, this, how old you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, this was yeah, extremely amazing. insightful. Uh, the amount of knowledge that you're able to share with us and our audience is fantastic. If anyone wants to get a hold of you, Carrie, what's the easiest way to get a hold of you? So you can go to our website, uh, www.greenwich.hr, G-R-E-N-W-I-C-H.hr. And uh, you can also email me directly, Carrie, C-A-R-Y, at Greenwich.hr. Fantastic. Awesome. We need to get you on the show more often because the amount of data and what's actually happening in the labor market is extremely interesting for everyone. Carrie, again, thank you so much for coming yes, on. Yes. Thank it's, you, Carrie. It's been my pleasure. Welcome, change agents, to your go to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change Podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.